to Sixth Four, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings for Kiwi tech organizations. I'm your host, Bradley Scott, and each episode I invite co-hosts and guests to tell a story of an important part of a Kiwi tech organization's journey. the Nokia 3310 debuted and went on to become one of the most successful mobile phones of all time. It was also in 2000 that the New Zealand software startup MCOM was founded. MCOM would go on to develop a successful mobile banking platform that would be used by thousands of global financial institutions and millions if not tens of millions of users. In 2011, MCOM was acquired by US-based Fortune 500 fintech company Fiserv and to this day retains an office in Auckland CBD that employs over 100 staff. At MCOM's founding, it was seven years prior to the launch of the iPhone, and the category of smartphone had also not yet come into existence. What made you think it was a good idea to start a company focused on mobile banking at the time? Graham Ransley here. It was uh, one of the founders of MCOM when the, uh, the role of um, COO came up. Uh, that became the uh, role that I fulfilled for most of my time there. I, th- I think I think actually the question is quite a good one because it uh, illustrates one of the important things that I, that I feel about uh, the company, and that is that you have to have the ability to um, pivot and change direction um, often and well. I think as we started out, we never actually started out as a mobile payments company. In fact, um, I think our first contract was ma- mobilizing a, a gaming platform or gambling platform. Uh, so we were going to be into mobile gambling, which uh, seemed like a good, good idea at the time. Um, and it took uh, a series of events to, um, to then pivot through a number of other um, another number of other technologies until we got to uh, mobile banking. And that was probably a good part of five or six years later. Uh, yeah, Adam Clark was one of the founders of MCOM and um, once we determined we need a CEO, I stepped into that role, but largely was uh, responsible for where we were going commercially as much as anything else. Stu Christie was actually the original sole founder and had a, had a view to build a, a, a development consulting organisation and um, then the tech wreck came along and that didn't work out and... and you and I got involved, and I think the – I don't remember we were going to be a gambling platform. We were building – we did some work to potentially build that for somebody else. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it took us a while to find our feet, and I think we, we did a bunch of work with telcos and with banks, and we could have gone down the mobile payments route but ended up more the mobile banking, the bank-centric. So I remember Graham telling stories of several near-death experiences from those early days. Can you – Tell us what those early years were like and at what points you thought it just wasn't going to work. Uh, most points, possibly for the first, for the first little while. Um, you know, we had, a, we had a pretty small team. We managed to, um, to bootstrap it. So, so Graham and I, um, you know, were a part of that. Ed, Ed Massey joined us and, and Darren Zhu and a few other folks that we're all still friends with. 
Um, and, you know, we built a little bit of IP, but a lot of what we were doing was exploring and understanding where we might fit in the market and, you know, scrounging revenue along the way and simply not paying ourselves in order to, to sustain the company. So I remember even at maybe year four or year five, we were probably only doing 300 odd thousand dollars of, of revenue. Um, so a lot of those sort of near-death experiences, and I think there was a period of time in about 2004 when, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of cash left and I think we were struggling to find the next pivot. Uh, and so we did talk about actually winding the business up, but uh, we then got involved in a, in a great project with ASB Bank and what was what's now Spark, but Telecom in those days to do a, a mobile top-up service with them which is a bit outdated nowadays, but you you know you could attach your FBOS or your debit card to your phone um, digitally and use that to to pay for your prepaid mobile account, and and that gave us a you know a bit of a bit of a tailwind, and yeah, we did some work with Westpac around text based mobile banking, and then um, yeah, the, the contract with the ANZ Group was important, and that we actually built out a full mobile banking service with them, albeit the iPhone didn't exist and, and, and the Android, so we were actually using an old Java, it was J2ME or something, Graham, which was a gaming platform, um, uh, you know, a, a, a platform for mobile games, and we used that um, to actually create a, create a product. Actually, I think um, if, you, if you kind of have a, have a look at the history of it, um, it kind of brings out one thing which, which I believe in, and it's interesting because... People, when they see a, a company that's been successful, they always seem to um, gravitate towards this idea that there's a secret formula. And um, in our experience, there's very few secret formulas. Um, but there are some things that actually contribute. And, uh, you know, one of them's, or, or, or one of the most important ones, I think, is team. Um, another one is tenacity, really, just, just having the uh, guts to hang in there and, uh, and, and, uh, and get on with it. But the other interesting one is timing. And um, I've often kind of thought timing for MCOM was terrible because nothing really happened for, for probably five or six years. And somehow we had to sustain ourselves during those, that, that period of time. But, but then you kind of have another view of it and you look, well, timing actually is kind of everything because during those previous years, we were actually building on a capability um, without necessarily knowing it, um, building on a capability which was going to make us successful when a smartphone turned up or when um, when mobile banking became of age. And it's interesting to look back on some of those early times and say, you know, what have, you know, how things have actually changed today and how many of the things that we now take for granted were things that we actually touched and tried to have a go at it at a much too early stage. And, you know, we talked about a mobile gaming platform, but uh, something else that we tried to do was to actually mobilise email. Um, so put email onto mobile phones. And um, so pre-smartphones um, back in the days of WAP. And we went through a project with... Uh, with clear communications in New Zealand to put uh, email on a mobile phone, but um, unfortunately for us at the uh, at the critical at the critical juncture, 
uh, Clear Communications was uh, was bought, acquired, and uh, and the project closed down. So that was kind of one of our first near-death experiences. And then if you follow on from there, there was uh, there were payments projects, um, uh, payments project which allowed merchants to 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 accept payments from from customers, and one of the interesting things is that uh, we got right the way through to a successful launch with the BNZ, who was interested in in uh, uh, getting rid of its smaller merchants. Well, sorry, it was interested in in um, in getting its smaller merchants off uh, paper-based transactions. And what happened was that uh, pretty much uh, coinciding with our successful launch of the product, BNZ decided that they were going to actually, that they didn't really want any of the smaller merchants. And so that whole project kind of came to a, to a, a grinding halt. Um, but that product is one which, um, which is now a billion dollar um, or, or is is uh, uh, yeah a billion dollar market, or or there is a there is a billion dollar company that is um, that is now successful internationally with that, known as Square. Yeah, a lot bigger than billion. There's uh, there's there's multiple multi billion dollar companies, and uh, and we also did uh, you know a hack of an NFC style payment system we called SwiftPay, where we put a RFID tag on the bottom on the back of phones and actually created a fully, you know, what you look now as your as your contactless payments and we did that in what two thousand five or two thousand six, Graham. And uh, yeah, so I suppose we tried a few things ahead of our time and it did build up. It built the team. It built the bonds in the team. It built. One of the things I always talked about. I remember when you joined us, uh, Brady. I think when you took over the development team and you you said, "How did you?" as you were scaling that team and the culture was changing. And I may not remember this the same way you do, but I know. Um, you said, how did you how did you build that culture initially in the small team where everybody would were just so tight and would do whatever it took? And and I think it, I said to you it was about there's nothing like bonding a group of people than overcoming adversity together. And I think we did that so many times and the core of MCOM continued to do it uh, and I've never seen it. I've never seen a team that has, you know, had that much scrappiness, that much loyalty to each other, that much, you know, achieved that much, would go above and beyond what was really reasonable. Um, and I think it was a sign of the way that we emerged and that adversity we overcame. It was a sign of, um, you know, Graham and and the faith he had in people and the way he treated people and the others that we brought on. And, and you know, you add one more and one more person. Um, and it was able to, to hang together. I think it was also a, a sign of the times. You know, we were there weren't a there wasn't really a tech startup ecosystem in New Zealand at the time. Um, you know, we were a bit more unique. Um, we were trying to take on the world. We were pretty scrappy, um, and so it was, it was a more unique opportunity than what you see now. And there were probably different expectations. I certainly now, as I look at the companies that I'm involved in. Um, you just, I wouldn't operate at anything like that. But uh, Serge, you you came in at some point on that journey, right? Oh five or I certainly did. End yeah, end of 04 I signed up and helped uh, I guess uh, frame 
the plan and the strategy. And I, I think the key thing here was uh, that we had a high conviction. Everyone, everyone had high conviction in the future. And the fundamental thing was, and, and this is kind of my first engagement with you guys formerly as MCOM, was that the functions of everything sitting inside your wallet would all be translated into the mobile phone at some stage, i.e. secure authenticated transactions and the user experience around those would take place on the mobile phone sooner or later. Uh, now that seems really obvious now, but you're sitting there in the 2004 forecasting that and almost no one on the planet believes that. So, I, I, you know, I think that conviction uh, was the thing, you know, beyond sort of the cultural things that you've talked about already and uh, embracing adversity, etc. We got the timing wrong on almost everything during those first few years, as Graham's already said, but we were right about the master thesis. And the master thesis was that consumers would want um, to have a better user experience for all the things that sit in their wallet conveyed or carried through a mobile device. And that certainly turned out to be the case. So Adam, you said that you wouldn't do it the same way again today. But what lessons from those early years still do apply and you'd still give that advice to founders today? And what learnings don't apply because of the passage of time or the evolution of the industry? I'll talk to a couple. I'd probably be tough to come up with an exhaustive list and let you guys all weigh on on it, I think. Um, one of the things that we... I've talked about this a lot Um we never tended to outsource the hard work, and I think that there's a tendency these days to, um, you know, for some founders to do that. And it's advice that I've given to founders and and other participants in these early stage companies that um, that there isn't any way to outsource the hard work. You should get other people to do things that they do better than you, but it's not going to make life easy. And anyone who's looking to, you know, to get out of the hard work, I think they're going to struggle. Yeah, these things always, and we probably all have this perspective at different times, when you're looking at the job someone else is doing, it seems easier than yours. It's a factor of the grass is greener, I think. Um, but absolutely, you can't. It, this stuff's hard. And and I think when people talk about startups being fun, um, it, it's a, it's not the, you know, laughing at a party or at a comedy show. It's It's the fun of working together it's the fun of achieving against the odds it's the it's the satisfaction of of getting things done um you know i've said Serge mentioned before i was a, played rugby very late and very poorly but uh, but we did meet on the back of a social uh, rugby scrum and i've likened it to you know that for some people it's fun being at the bottom of a rugby ruck um but for most people that's just not them and and i think it's the same for a startup I think you know what I, I think. There's been a big cultural shift. I mean, we've if you look at um, starting, a, you know, if you're in an early stage company now as a founder or as a as a team member or as a senior leader, um, you've probably got a much more diverse team. Um, you've got different expectations. Uh, you've got many more um, examples that they can look at, and I think so. I think the expectations of the team are, are quite different. Um, you know, one and and the way that they want to that you might bond. I mean, I, you know, at MCOM, while we weren't a bunch of alcoholics, you know, if we needed to celebrate, we went out, we went out and drank. If we were 
if something went wrong, we went out and drank. If we had someone start, we went out and drank. If we had someone leave, we went out and drank. Like that was kind of our thing. And I remember um, even before we got acquired, you know, we got to, you know, nearly 100 people before we got acquired. And and as you start to see other cultures come into the group, it's kind of that's just not how they want to celebrate. And uh, and I think that now, for the most part, that's not how, how a tech startup wants to celebrate. So you've got to find other ways. Yeah, I was going to add uh, a couple of things to Adam's comment. Um, I guess the first one, you know, I totally agree about the embracing adversity. You know, I think that everybody who joined in the early days at MCOM, you know, startup world was so mature that it was a new thing for everybody involved. And it sort of attracted, uh, I guess, some people who are slightly strange or liked pain a bit more or some other thing. Whereas these days, if you ask if you if you ask someone in an interview in an early stage company with ten people, you know what level of pain are you looking forward to? They think that's a very unusual question to be asking, um, and you know they really want to talk about what benefits they're going to get and other things. So uh, this whole embracing adversity, uh, I think, has become quite problematic in the early stage scene in New Zealand. Um, so I totally agree with Adam there, and I think the other side, which is very different now, is there is a playbook on how you do that, especially in B2B SaaS. Um, and that makes uh, people complacent because they, there's kind of like a script to follow and they're just not thinking about all the rules they need to, to, to break to be successful. Um, and, and some of that audacity is gone. Again, there's some pretty relatively successful companies out there who are really just following a script, a script or a playbook. Um, and, and part of our story was, well, there was no playbook, so we had to invent. Obviously, we made a lot of mistakes along the way but we were audacious and invented uh, a way forward for our company that worked. And I see that's kind of uh, materially reduced in the market. There's many companies out there who just think if they follow the playbook, you know, whatever they've, they've watched at Sasta or whatever they've heard from Jason Lemkin or whatever it happens to be, if they just follow that script, they'll be successful. And I just simply don't think that's true for most companies. One of the things that, um, that plays into that surge is... Um is uh, financial security of companies these days. I think um, uh, of startup companies these days is, um, is quite difficult. Um, I mean, when we started, there was no money. We, we couldn't get funding. We tried. We tried very hard, but it was extremely difficult to get anybody to fund you. So the mindset was a bit different. It was, it was a, an organic mindset. Um, and, uh, and you know, and, and hence the adversity that we, that we experienced, you know, was all part of that. Um, t- today, well, one of the things that I'd say is that is that uh, a sense of frugality when it comes to finances is actually is actually not a bad thing to have. And I think that uh, being very careful with the way that you utilise your resources, and and the, and of course, finance is one of the resources, but but. Uh, but being extremely uh, careful and frugal with the way that you use resources is actually is part of, or was certainly part of our uh, part of our story. Um, and it meant that when times became tough later on, global financial crisis hitting, and you know, like much later in our, uh, you know, after we'd been going for eight years, um, it meant that we were um, reasonably well versed in in how we were going to actually deal with it. How are we going to deal with with the downturn, and um, yeah, and, and rode through that. 
with uh, with a reasonable level of success. But so I think that um, that, that that's something that's changed uh, with with the easing up of of uh, of availability to money is is um, has actually changed that outlook for, for a lot of people. I think that's I think that's true. I think there's also Graham. There's some um, there's some things that I think we would have done better if we weren't as focused on. You know, we had to we bootstrap the thing. Um, you know, we were very frugal. Uh, and some of those things I don't think you get away with now. I mean, um, I remember Surge. We were in Charlotte, North Carolina, going in to see Wachovia or Bank of America or whichever one it was at the time. And there's four of us crammed into a you know, into a hotel room with one bed and, um, you know, I did, now that was us as a core team, I was right, but there was a lot of situations where people were bunking down, sleeping on the floor. I mean, we had one guy in Cambodia, Graham, who was wanted to come home and you, you know, probably a little, uh, little more than fair, sold him on the, on the merits of staying. Um, you know, we had a very, you know, we had a, and, a, and we had a very, we had a very strong focus on watching the dollar, and I think the core team was okay with that. And once the team got a little bit bigger, we probably didn't adjust as quickly as we as we maybe should have, and maybe would have benefited from because it did create some discomfort for people. I think um, the other thing I think is you know particularly for me, I remember a number of times when um, because we were always very careful with cash because we never had much cash. There were deals we could have collapsed pricing on and got a strategic deal much, much, much more quickly. I'm talking not a month. I'm talking maybe a nine, 12 months sooner, which would have built a lot more momentum for us. But I held on, you know, to get the extra $100,000, $50,000, $300,000, whatever it was. Um, and it enabled us to keep, you know, growing. But I think we grew a lot slower than we otherwise might have. And I also, as I reflect now, you know, to your point earlier, the market didn't really exist for us. The, you know, the iPhone, the Android weren't out. Um, the whole startup ecosystem wasn't quite there. There weren't all these playbooks, um, and so we were, we were in the doldrums at different times, waiting for the market to arrive. And so we could move much more slowly. You just can't do that. You just can't do that now. I think you've got to move a lot faster. And so the stories of MCOM and the, the way that we did some things, I think, is outdated. Yeah, well, so look, I, I, look. There's lots of things we learned along the way. Um, lots of things we failed, and lots of things we would have done differently. But um, to me, the the biggest uh, takeaways, the biggest things that I carry forward and try and encourage the teams I work with today to think about is, uh, firstly, the notion of audacity. You know, what would what would the most remarkable version of this team do in this circumstance? Not what's the blueprint or what are you expected to do, but what would the most remarkable version of yourselves do? And that to me is kind of the question you ask to frame to get audacity out, right? And quite often you get good answers from people. It makes them uncomfortable, but you do get good answers from them. And so that's the first thing I'd say is keep asking yourself that question and rely less on the playbook and the things you're expected to do. And the other, which I think is a little bit harder to deal with because the environment's changed is how do you make teams or how do you help teams embrace adversity right the more successful you are the more likely it is that you went through some really hard stuff 
that took a toll on you. Um, and on one hand, the you know the natural uh, human behaviour is to avoid that adversity. Uh, the you know the direction of directors and investors are you know look after yourselves, look after your well-being, all of that stuff, all of which is valid, right? But the reality is the best teams are ones that embrace adversity and power through that and are prepared to suffer the consequences. And I think that's a much harder problem to solve for. But I think the teams that I come across that aren't prepared to embrace that adversity ultimately are shortchanging themselves and go on much less of an adventure than they might have otherwise. Yeah, I think it's interesting that um, that in life, it's actually it's actually those um, it's actually conquering those adversities. Um, it's it's remembering that you had to sleep on the floor of the uh, you know, the hotel and. In uh, in the states, while you were going off to do a you know a presentation or whatever it is, it uh, it's remembering that uh, th- that you used to fly to Australia and back to Melbourne to visit the ANZ uh, in a single day, so that you didn't have to miss the next day in the office at work. Uh, it's remembering some of those things, which in hindsight are are the things that. Um, that actually are character building and and you don't remember them unfavorably. You never do remember those things unfavorably. Um, and I think that um, that that uh, that um, conquering adversity is actually something which is which is great for um, for uh, individuals, but also for building teams. Um, one of the um, one of the things that I'm pretty Pretty hot on in terms of uh, in terms of you know successful organisations or successful anything is really is actually all about the team and you know the best the best teams are ones where people support each other you know they don't they don't talk each other down they don't you know they don't uh, that they may criticise but they um, but they actually support each other, support each other. Um, they enjoy success, and uh, you know I think that uh, people people actually want to work for successful companies. They want to work for something that's a success. Um, it doesn't matter how great your job is. If you're not actually contributing towards success, then it's going to it's going to feel a little bit hollow. One of the uh, one of the things that we that we did when we were trying to hire and grow our team, um, I think Adams. Uh, said in the first up till 2011, we'd um, grown the team to around 100 people from from in the low in the low 40s. Um, not that not that long before, and then in the ensuing couple of years after that, I think the team grew to something like 250. Um, and it was difficult finding people, but uh, one of the things that we did was to was to invest in in MCOMs, um, uh, um, MCOMs um, view of, or, or sorry, people's view of what MCOM was, um, and so we went about putting time into time and effort into uh, into entering uh, various awards, technical awards, and 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 in, in, in many cases actually winning them. And so, building up um, uh, MCOMs, um, 
uh, presence um, and something that um, that people actually wanted to work for. And I think that that whole people side of things has actually been extremely important for us. I was just building what, what Graham said for me. Um, I mean, startups are all about the people and and so that team is, is critically important. But I think I would always, and do now, I favour um, hiring somebody and bringing somebody into the team that I want to work with, that the team wants to work with, that has um, high intelligence, high energy and high integrity. And I'm less worried about whether they've done a specific job before or not. Yes, they need to be able to do the job, but the reality is if you bring somebody in that, that fits that criteria, um, they're going to be exceptional and make a massive difference. And, and you hire a bunch of people like that and you're going to have a phenomenal team and you'll achieve whatever you want. Those, you know, overcoming adversity, courage, you know, being a bit cheeky, getting on with it, doing what needs to be done, being flexible, all those things come from those personalities. Um, Serge, I don't, I don't agree these days with that, that, overcoming an adversity has to be with suffering. Um, and I think that, you know, and clearly that's now the passion and the business that I'm in is how we can actually live and do these things but still remain well. Uh, and and there are, you know, you look at elite athletes and, and they overcome adversity, but it doesn't mean then, I mean, they're suffering in the moment possibly, but they're not suffering necessarily long term uh, unless they don't take care of themselves unless they don't take the time to rest and recover and stretch and do roll out exercises or whatever and look after their mental well-being as well so you you know give it heaps have the courage work hard but also take care of yourselves and get good people around you um, we've mentioned a couple of them john perham martin goldfinch jim quinn was great for us in the early days um but we had a bunch of people that wanted to help us out because we we're decent folks you know, trying to punch well above our weight. Um, the other thing for me, you know, we, and there's a couple of things that have changed. I mentioned before, we bootstrapped the company. I wouldn't do that now. I think if you're wanting to build a consulting business, sure, um, don't take on equity. But if you're wanting to build a product and be the best in the world, the market's not going to wait for you to do it um, organically. Uh, I think that, you know, we talked about, some of our culture, we had really, really open conflict. And I think conflict is super important. You've got to have open conflict. But ours was probably a bit abrasive, and I do remember some people starting. Um, you know, I remember in, uh, just after we moved into that GE building, I think, I can't remember you and, you and I, Serge, or you and I, Graham, but we had an argument about, in, in front of about 30 people, and we, I don't know, maybe it was 20 people, 10 people, and we walked out laughing and having a hug. And one of the new people came up to me afterwards and said, what the fuck was that? Well, they just couldn't, they couldn't understand that behavior. And, and again, I think that while it was great for us and the people that saw that happening and we all got into that and we, and we engaged in that way and we made decisions and we voiced our views and then we, and then we got on with it, what we call it Mentimir and what the All Blacks call agree to disagree and commit. Um, I just think nowadays you've got to create a safer environment because what happened is we would have those, that open conflict, but the temp other people in the room just sat there looking uncomfortable 
uh, and uh, and agree with your search. You've you got to go where you're uncomfortable, but in that instance, all those inputs didn't happen. So I think those are some of the things uh, that I'd learn and give it a crack, give it a crack and get on with it, be deliberate, have a go. Don't do what everybody else is doing. And on that note, we're going to leave it there for this episode. However, there's a second episode in the making that tells the story of MCOM's growth, shift to being a product company, entry to the US market, partnership with Fiserv, and their eventual acquisition. I'd like to thank Adam Clark, Graham Ransley, and Serge Van Dam for their time and being 6-4 guests, and I look forward to sharing with you all more of the conversation we had. This has been 6-4, a podcast that tells stories of successes, failures, and learnings from Kiwi tech organizations. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know and share it with someone else who you think would enjoy it too. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, please get in contact to suggest them. Until next episode, goodbye.